The Homegrown Generation Family Expo is back. The Homegrown Generation Family Expo is a live and fully interactive online conference coming March 6th through 9th. Registration is now open at homegrowngeneration.com. It'll be four days of nonstop encouragement and fun that you can enjoy from the comfort of your home. Registration includes lifetime access to every session. Mark your calendars for March 6th through 9th and visit homegrowngeneration.com to register today. I know, Kurt, that a lot of your methodology or the things you try to help people in really involve experiential kind of practices, you know, connecting their body to what they're doing. You know, for some people, that's maybe still, you know, they feel like that's psychology, that's floofy, that's not spiritual. Like, so why is it, you know, help our listeners understand why is it so important to connect our bodies, our, you know, the actual physical bodies to the kind of things we're thinking and understanding about ourselves and about God? Mm -hmm. We've been taught that our bodies are not nearly as important as the thoughts that we think. Yeah. We've actively been taught that. Yep. We think that's the way spirituality works. We think that we can preach a sermon and just because information is downloaded, that somehow is gonna magically change people's lives. The more we are willing to pay attention to our bodies, the more we actually become aware that the Holy Spirit is trying to get to us through a medium that we always have access to. Interestingly enough, you can be like aware of God trying to be in and with you Mm -hmm. simply by paying attention to your body. First we sense, then we make sense of what we sense. And to the degree that we don't do that, we miss opportunities to be present with God and God with us. To the degree that we do pay attention to that, we find all kinds of new ways for life and liberty. Let me put it simply. Anyone who misrepresents, who misinterprets, who ignores or detracts from God's Word by giving false teaching or confusing people with useless human reason has cause to be ashamed. No matter how many degrees you have or how many PhDs or how erudite you think you are, if you violate the Word of God or misrepresent its glorious truth, you have every reason to stand before God in shame. Welcome to Thoroughly Equipped, a podcast for women where we compare the popular women's ministry teachings, books, conferences, Bible studies, etc. to scripture. Our focus is 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I am your host, Melba Toast. May this episode bless you and bring glory to God. Hello, ladies. Welcome back to another episode of Thoroughly Equipped. So thankful that you have taken the time to listen to this episode. If you are new, welcome. TE is part of Striving for Eternity's Christian podcast community. If you are new to podcasts or have been enjoying them for a while and you are looking for good, solid podcasts that will encourage you in your Christian walk, exalt Christ and God's word, then the Christian podcast community is for you. If you're new to Christianity itself or are learning about Christianity, it is also a great resource as you can find podcasts that answer questions about what we believe and what the Bible teaches. So I want to just encourage you to check out the Christian podcast community at podcast.strivingforeternity.com or you can find the community and all the podcasts associated with them on all major podcasting platforms. 
Also, if you are a homeschooler, I am super excited to share with you the 2023 Homegrown Generation Family Expo. So mark your calendar for Monday through Thursday, March 6th to 9th, and join this one-of-a-kind event. Live, it's online, and fully interactive with an incredible incredible speaker lineup, including Sam Sorbo, Dorinda Wilson, Todd Wilson, Davis and Raquel Carmen, uh, Dr. Georgia Purdom, Elizabeth Parsons, and many, many more. Links and information is included in the show notes, so please go ahead and check that out if you are homeschooling or interested in homeschooling. So we have been looking at Jenny Allen's If Ministry and presenting what is taught from its studies, books, and conferences. I've presented to you some of the popular female speakers that are uh promoted at this conference. We have also looked at the way they handle scripture. We have looked at their promotion of the Enneagram as a tool used for leadership. We've looked at the spiritual disciplines they encourage one to perform to experience God and hear his voice. We've looked at the Christian mystics they describe as masters of spiritual disciplines, those touted as ones who can help us know Jesus better in the If Equip study titled Enjoying Jesus. And now I'm going to present to you the If Ministry's use of analytical quote unquote tools, how these are incorporated into their idea of Christian discipleship. Remember, the IF ministry's goal is to reclaim discipleship as God's means by which he changes the world. So whatever they present, they hope to guide you into accomplishing this goal. They want to equip you to be discipled and disciple others by which God would use this to change the world. I argue and continue to argue that scripture on its own, is sufficient enough to do this for any disciple of Christ. As we will see, if does not agree. But before I present this, let's talk about what I mean by analytical tools. So what is an analytical tool? An analytical way of doing something involves the use of logical reasoning. And in this case, we're talking in religious and sociological terms here, the tools are abstract. They are theories or philosophies, ways, which one sees the world. The simplest way I can put it is it's a belief system or lens supposedly supported by observation and reason, they call it science and studies, by which we can make conclusions about the world. There are two very popular analytical tools that I see being promoted at the IF ministry. Both are being integrated with scripture to train Christians up in discipleship. And those are psychology, psychotherapy to be more specific, and critical race theory. Today I want to address the psychological analytical tool that has been presented for the last couple of years. If has had two main speakers who are psychotherapists, Dr. Anita Phillips and Dr. Kurt Thompson. Dr. Anita Phillips is closely associated with Bishop T.D. Jakes, 
has been a speaker at Jake's International Leaders Conference last year, has been a guest on Sarah Jake Roberts' TD Jake's Daughters podcast, and has spoken at Joel Olstein's church, Lakewood Church, on emotional health. She presents messages on navigating our emotional health at these conferences, similar to what she presents at the If Lead and If Gathering conferences. She has a book coming out this summer, so she's someone I will have to keep my eye on. But at this point, other than these conferences and her podcast, there wasn't a lot to find out on what she believes in regards to Christian doctrine. She talks mostly on emotion and dealing with anxiety. But the other popular speaker, Dr. Kurt Thompson, is a personal mentor of Jenny Allen and speaks more frequently on podcasts at conferences and colleges such as Biola University and such. He has written three somewhat popular books dealing with the soul, shame, desire, and the emotional maturity or sanctification and spiritual growth of an individual in community. The reason I wish to look at his teachings is because these topics are spiritual in nature. So the question is, since he is a psychiatrist, what is the lens that he uses to make sense of the soul, shame, and desire? Does he use psychological tools to draw out information regarding these things, or does he use scripture to draw out truth to tell us about our soul and the root of our shame and desires? Is scripture the authority on these issues by which he uses it to guide his observations and ultimately his teachings on the soul? Or is his study in neuroscience and psychotherapy the leading authority on the issue and merely twists scripture to back up his teachings? That's what we're going to find out. A side note here. Why is this important? Why should we look at the teachings presented here? Well, one, this is sneaky. Teachings such as these comes from people such as Dr. Thompson, who specialize in these areas. Analytical tools such as psychology and critical race theory deal with people, relationships, and beliefs about why we behave the way we behave, whether it's observed in an individual or in a system. We look at these people who specialize in these areas and tend to submit to their teachings as authoritative. So it's easy to be drawn into them and believe them without question because we see them, the speakers, as authoritative on the issue. Two, as the world proclaims more and more the irrelevance of God's word in the church, the temptation to be pragmatic starts to become an issue. The seeker-sensitive church has already capitulated to this burden, and so they bring in speakers such as these and integrate psychology and sociology into theology, rejecting the sufficiency of the Word and the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Christ's disciples. 3. These teachings are intertwined with Christian mysticism, spiritual disciplines, and are the gateway to theological liberalism and progressive Christianity. Lord willing, I hope to discuss this further on a future episode of TE. Now, this stuff is creeping into churches, so it may have its tendrils in your church. 
Because the pastorate is a shepherding of the soul, the world's wisdom of psychotherapy, mysticism, and spiritual disciplines are used by some pastors to make sermons, messages, and the church in general relevant to the world by the use of these teachings and practices. But back to Dr. Kurt Thompson. So, the way I want to go about this is I will present Dr. Kurt Thompson's teachings in two parts. First, we'll review a message given at the 2019 If Lead Conference, the conference for female leaders who lead Bible studies and host the If Gathering conferences either at their homes, in their college, or churches. He has spoken at the If Lead Conference and at the If Gathering conferences for the last three years. There were a couple of messages to choose from, but I chose the If Lead Conference to present to you because... One, he's going to start with a Bible verse to launch off with what he wants to talk about. And two, what is given at the If Lead conferences are for leaders in the local church. What is taught at these conferences will be used by these women to help them train up women under them for ministry work. Three, his talks throughout the years have been pretty much the same as he addresses the soul, shame, and desire through neuroscience. In the other episode, I will present to you a talk he gave about nine years ago after the release of his book, The Anatomy of the Soul. I will also present to you some of the teachings from that book to expose what he believes about the fall, sin, the gospel, redemption, regeneration, Jesus, the cross, and salvation. For future episodes dealing with Jenny Allen's If Ministry, We will look at racial reconciliation and IF's incorporation of critical race theory and woke ideology in bringing about racial reconciliation. So that is hopefully what is coming down the pike for the next couple of episodes on IF. After these episodes, I want to give you my conclusion on the IF ministry as a whole and then take a long, hot spiritual bath, so to speak, (laughs) and plan season three of TE. So let's dive in. Let's look at IF's incorporation of the analytical tool of psychotherapy to train women up in Christian discipleship. Back in 2019, Dr. Thompson spoke at the IF Lead Conference. IF Lead is a conference for women who are involved in church ministry. Those who wish to become involved in church ministry or those who host the IF Locals, which are homes or dorms, basically individual spots that present the IF conference online. Some context before we get into the segments of this message. Dr. Thompson's message is titled Dwell. It starts out by making the statement that, quote, following Jesus is hard to do, end quote. The purpose of this message is to help the female leaders there understand what it means to, quote, take what God is doing and take it home, end quote to live out what they were taught at the IF Lead conference. As leaders, the women there are to, quote, give to people that which will enable them to flourish. This is the definition of leadership that Dr. Thompson presents. Sometimes, states Dr. Thompson, what we need to give to someone to flourish might surprise us. Here he's going to quote Psalm 27.4 to introduce the psalmist's desire to dwell with the Lord, stating that the psalmist is laser-focused on this one thing, contrasting that with today's society where we focus on so many things that we cannot 
dwell on one specific thing. To dwell in something, one must be in one place long enough for habits to develop and relationships to deepen. To know more than just what one's name is and what one does for a living. To dwell is to remain. From here, he talks about how the house of the Lord moved over time from a tent to the temple, to Jesus, to us. So now, because the Holy Spirit lives in us, that means to dwell in the house of the Lord is to dwell with each other. So let's look at Psalm 27 for a bit before I play for you where he goes with it. I'm going to read from verse 3 to verse 6. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in this I trust. For one thing I've asked from Yahweh, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. For in the day of calamity he will conceal me in his shelter. In the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with loud shouts of joy. I will sing, and I will sing praise to Yahweh. The psalmist here is clearly talking about the physical temple, the place where he offers sacrifices, the temple where he inquires. Now, here's a question. What does this text say about dwelling and what it means to dwell in the house of the Lord? I ask this because from this text, Dr. Thompson will go on to teach what it means to dwell with the Lord. The house of the Lord would have been a tabernacle. And what's striking is as you look at the trajectory of Scripture, you see that the house of the Lord moves. It moves from the tabernacle to the temple of Solomon. To the, by the time we get to John chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will build it in three days. The temple is Jesus. And then we get to Pentecost and the Holy Spirit gets in on the action. And now we discover that it's not just Jesus who is the temple, but we are the body of Jesus. We are the temple. What does that mean? It means to dwell with God means we dwell with each other. And we see the vision of Jesus, and we hear the voice of God in the eye contact and the body language and the tone of voice of the others with whom we are telling the truth about our lives. Who are the people with whom you will dwell who will become your tabernacle of the living God? Now, while Thompson is correct that we are the temple of God, there are two things that need to be addressed here. One, this psalm is not teaching what he's claiming here. He's essentially using the psalmist's desire to dwell in the tent, a place at the time where God's law and word were given and sins were forgiven, to teach others to desire to know and be known by others, as you will see as we go through this message. Two, the Bible does talk about us being the temple of the living God, the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. 1 Corinthians three sixteen to 17 6, 16 to 19, and other texts. But that does not mean we, quote, see the vision of Jesus and hear the voice of God in the eye contact, body language, and tone of voice of others with whom we are telling the truth about our lives. 
End quote. This is making the claim that extra-biblical revelation, the vision of Jesus, the voice of God, can be received from someone's body language. But there is going to be more to this. He's going to go on and say that this is part of building community. Now, I'm harping on this for a very good reason here. This is a message in the context of a women's ministry leadership conference, a conference held to equip women with tools needed to disciple other women. So here we have a speaker teaching female leaders to build communities where they are to receive the vision of Jesus and the voice of God and other people in communities. So as this is being lived out, we have women dealing with living with unbelievers, people who do not have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. Those who have the Spirit are the called out ones, the church. So it's interesting that he asks, quote, who are the people with whom you will dwell who will become your tabernacle of the living God, end quote. We do not choose these people. God does. God calls them out and we fellowship with them as we join with them in worship on Sunday. Those are whom the Spirit dwells in, and those are the people whom we call brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not just anyone, and this is an important distinction that Dr. Thompson does not make. In the research I have done on Dr. Kurt Thompson, the messages, podcast interviews, articles on his website, and the book that I have read, he does not clarify this and differentiate between believers and unbelievers. And that is because, as I will present in another episode, he believes, just like the Christian mystics, that the spirit or light within resides in everyone. So he goes on to say that this is hard work to do, that evil does its work as you begin to start something of goodness and beauty by building anxiety within us. From here, he goes back to Psalm 27. Watch what he says here. But then there is this next thing that happens, where the writer says, I dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now, this is tricky, especially if you're, you know, if, if you're a dude, right, and you're talking about beauty, these things are kind of sometimes confusing, right, for, for men to talk about these kinds of things. But I want to suggest something to us this morning. I want to suggest that it's not hard for us. I, I remember, I, remember I, I, I stood at the, at the edge of the south rim of the Grand Canyon with our family back about 10 or 15 years ago. And it, it was like late in the afternoon, low light, and, and it was so beautiful. It was almost too painful to look at. When beauty is this bright, when it is this dense, when it is this real, it is that overwhelming. And here's the news. That is who you are. Our problem is we don't believe it. You're not just beautiful. In this case, you are not a container for an adjective, the word beautiful. You are living, breathing, pulsating beauty, as it were. The question is, am I awake and aware of it, and how can I be continually persuaded that that is the case? This is ear-tickling at its finest. Oh, man. And it's just so unbiblical. One, he just twisted Psalm 27.4 to make the claim that you and I are so overwhelmingly beautiful by basically implying that because we are the temple of God, we are as beautiful as God is, whom the psalmist is actually exalting in this psalm. 
and I have to wonder about how many possible unbelievers are attending this conference. If we are so beautiful, what do we make of God's word talking about the evil and ugliness of our hearts? For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Matthew fifteen nineteen. Even for believers, women here who have put their trust in Christ's work for the forgiveness of their sin, being told that they need to be continually persuaded that they are overwhelmingly beautiful, is to take the beauty off of God. His beauty and his attributes, the law, his son, Christ's righteousness, the word of God, and the Spirit's work through that word, and place it on them and glorify them. It is tantamount to proclaiming that the Christian woman does not need to fight sin and temptation. The good news is not the proclamation that because of Christ I am now beautiful, but that I, a wretched sinner, am forgiven and reconciled to God, who is perfect goodness and beauty. He continues to relate this good news, that we are overwhelmingly beautiful, to our connection with others in community. He talks about techniques that he uses in his practice in bringing others to gaze at each other with expressions of kindness on their face, how it changes their moods, etc., This is part of what he calls being known, and being known is what we are made for. We gaze in order to be seen, because as I would say, look, we want to be seen, we want to be known, because this is what we were made for. We were made for relationship. We were made to have someone else look at me and look as if they want me to look at them, and we're all celebrating this in the same way. We want to have the sense that when I'm gazing at someone... I'm seeing myself for the first time. You see, the way the brain works is, as we like to say, every newborn comes into the world looking for someone looking for her, and it never stops. Who is the person that you're looking for that you want to be looking for you? We come into this world looking for someone to look for us. He might have some kind of a point here. We most definitely want attention, but does our desire for attention cause us to sin? Is this need for self-attention self-centered? Is God glorified by my desire to get attention? I can't find anything in scripture that talks about self-attention as being a good thing, a desire that was given by God or one that should be satisfied. But there's another thing about gazing and another thing about beauty. It's not that difficult for us to look at things that are beautiful. If you want to think about the Pietà in Rome, it's a beautiful thing. If you think about the Grand Canyon, there are all kinds of things in which we assume this is a beautiful thing to look at. But I want to suggest something else. I want to suggest that if we dwell long enough to gaze, eventually what we're going to see are things that we hate about ourselves. Eventually we're going to see the things that we confessed last night. And eventually we're going to recognize that the thing that I'm gazing at or the thing that somebody might see is the thing that I absolutely don't want them to look at. And I want to tell you, that is what God's looking for. I cannot imagine that beauty is something that could ever come out of the part about me that I hate the most. And I want to tell you, this is God's big surprise for evil. Evil figures that if you strip a man, beat the crap out of him, and then hang him on a tree, the shame of that event will cause everyone to leave and no one will look upon him. And if we just left Good Friday alone on its own terms, 
It indeed would be ugly and off-putting. But I want to tell you something. Seen through the lens of Easter, there is nothing more beautiful than a crucified Lord. I want us to know that seen through the lens of Easter, there is nothing more beautiful than the moment in which you are articulating the things about your life that you hate the most to someone else who is gazing, who can't wait to show you that in that moment, they are not leaving the room. So God is looking for us to expose that which we hate about ourselves. Now, I would hope that this would be our sin, but scripture describes us before regeneration as loving the darkness. So for people still in their sins, do they despise the sin or despise the shame, wishing to get rid of it without having to get rid of the sin they love? See, this is quite subjective and distinctions are not clearly made here. He talks about how the exposing of our sins to others is equated to the exposing of Christ's death. That evil hopes to get people to turn away from the sin or the death of Christ on the cross. But looking at the cross through the lens of Easter turns it into something beautiful. That what we really want is for people to see us in our sin and not turn away from us. But that's not going to solve humanity's problem. That will only make it worse, especially if an unbeliever has not rightly understood their problem. We like to justify our sin, to say, what I did was not so bad. They don't think it's so bad, so it must not offend God either. And as others stick by us in our sin, we sear our consciences and suppress the shame that should come from offending a holy and righteous God. For Thompson, shame leads people to be unloving to others. But shame is not the problem. You will see Thompson teach that it is in the coming episodes. Dealing with shame is not the real issue, as feeling shame on its own doesn't assuage God's wrath, which is what will ultimately be given should one not repent and put their faith in Christ and be reconciled to God. Unbelievers need to rightly understand their plight, that like we were, they are children of wrath, dead in their sins. Apart from faith in Christ, apart from his blood that cleanses them, apart from the wrath poured out on Christ, they will have to deal with God's judgment and will be found guilty. The good news is not that God is looking for those things we hate, things we think are ugly and shameful, to make those things and us into something beautiful. Humanity needs forgiveness and to be cleansed of all their sin, not to merely be accepted by God in those things they are ashamed of, to be accepted by God in our sin. That claim undermines the justice and goodness of God's character. Humanity needs to be put to shame and told of the evil of our sin against a holy and righteous God who will judge all according to the law, and then they need to be told of the love of this same God who sent his Son to fulfill the law and willingly died, taking on the Father's wrath. And we as Christians, believers, need to always be reminded of this work. Never straying from this gospel, holding on to Christ continually since we sin daily. 1 John 1, 8-10 Praising God that there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ. Romans 8, 1 This is the gospel. The gospel is about reconciliation, not 
beautification. Thompson goes on in the message to describe a time when he dealt with his son as he was wrestling with his faith in Christ, regretting how he dealt with the situation. From this, he spins off to his background and his family's past to extrapolate how our past is going to come into play in our gazing, in the middle of beauty being emergent in the telling of our stories. Thompson goes into an illustration of kintsugi, bowls that were broken and put back together with gold leaf. This is who we are is what he claims. And when we are seen and known and felt, we are being remade from brokenness to beauty, which bears witness to the gospel. This, my sisters, is who we are. We are nothing short of this. And Jesus is in the business of molding this. And here's then the other thing that happens. When I dwell and I gaze then I can inquire of the Lord. I can seek the Lord. I can tell God whatever I want because my brain is not working that hard to try to manage all the shame stuff that keeps it from naming and asking and seeking the things that I really want. And what do I really want? I want to be seen and known and heard and felt, and I want that to happen with you. And when that happens, when that community takes place, that community itself becomes an outpost of goodness and beauty. And the world outside of it can say, something's going on here. This is what it means to bear witness to the gospel. This is what it means to tell our stories truly. And so when the truth is told, Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, everything is different. We were made to be known in order to make things, in order to co-create with Jesus, to co-create with the Holy Trinity. And in so doing, I want to assure us that with shame being dismantled in the context of this kind of a community, that you're going to go home and work really hard to build, because and it will be hard to do, but Jesus is for you. With this kind of a community, great, new, beautiful things will emerge. Works that had been prepared for you before the foundation of the world. That right now our imaginations might have a hard time getting a hold of, but in the presence of Jesus and the absence of shame, all things are made possible. Amen? When we are seen and known in community, that community becomes an outpost of goodness and beauty, and that bears witness of the gospel. This makes the gospel the good news that you are known and accepted by God. Even though you sin, God just loves you and thinks you're so beautiful because he is taking your brokenness and making you more beautiful. Thompson has changed the meaning of what it means to bear witness to the gospel here. In this statement, Thompson is claiming that to tell our stories truly, without shame, is to bear witness to the gospel. And as we do this in community, Jesus shows up. Now, I'm all for Christians bearing witness to the gospel. Yes, proclaim it and testify of its sanctifying work in our lives. But if the gospel is not about Christ's saving, completed, and sufficient work to reconcile you to God, but is instead about Christ's beautifying work in your brokenness, you will have a works righteous gospel. And that is what you will see as we critique Thompson's teachings. Except this will be even more sneaky because it won't be works of law or prohibition, but psychotherapeutic works, works of getting in touch with feelings, emotions, our past, body language, connection and community, etc. And you will see it because he will describe these as regenerating works. From here, 
he leads them in a five-minute exercise to answer a couple of questions, and as they do that, to pay attention to any sensations, images, feelings, and thoughts they experience. This is meant to be an experience to help them practice dwelling. And after answering these questions and taking notes of these experiences, he has the pair up to discuss with another what transpired. In this, he relays how God is trying to reveal things through our stories by what we sense and think. After five minutes of the exercise, he returns to close, and in his closing, he gives a tip about the groups that they will minister to when they go back. In the groups that we run in our practice that we call confessional communities that we're working to develop, I usually tell someone, if we're inviting them to join the group, we usually tell them, it's important to know the following, that we really do believe that the group can be helpful for you, but we also believe that you can be helpful for the group. But I want you to know that the way you're going to be most helpful for the group is not by bringing your wisdom and your wit and your solutions to people's problems, all of which may be true and all of which may be helpful, but the single most helpful thing you will bring to the group is your vulnerability. Because it is in our vulnerability that we become Jesus on Good Friday in the way that Jesus was the Holy Trinity for us on Good Friday. All right, two things here. One, the single most important thing that we will bring to a group is our vulnerability. Not God's word and not the gospel. That is probably true if the gospel is about being known and accepted by God through others accepting and knowing you. We spread the gospel or our witnesses to the gospel by knowing and accepting others. So for Thompson, vulnerability would be an important factor to being saved or regenerated. But biblical discipleship is about teaching and instructing others to obey the commands of Christ, not about knowing and accepting each other in community. Two, in our vulnerability, we become Jesus on Good Friday the same way that Jesus was the Holy Trinity for us on Good Friday. What? Now, I tried really hard to grasp his meaning on this. One, I wanted to see if the statement was even biblical. At no point do we read in scripture that Jesus was the Trinity. He is and always was the second person of the Trinity. God is triune. And so I'm wondering... Does Thompson believe that Jesus wasn't divine at one point? Or how is our vulnerability an example of Jesus's vulnerability? And how does his claim that Jesus was the Trinity on the cross relate to vulnerability? Somehow on the cross, Jesus was all three persons of the Godhead. And somehow in our vulnerability, we are like Jesus on the cross, who was the Trinity for us. But what I do think he is claiming is some sort of integration of the whole brain. He talks about the brain being triune, that it works in three parts, and his whole goal is to help people become known through knowing themselves, basically integrating both sides of their brain hemispheres to self-actualize or become. Now, if this is where he's going with this, I might be able to extrapolate from the other teaching that I have seen that Jesus was divine, in which he was able to make use of his whole brain, integrate both hemispheres, and know himself as being one fully known by God. 
So by claiming that Christ was the Trinity, Thompson may be saying that Christ on the cross was exposing himself in vulnerability to humanity and at the same time was okay with it because he knew himself to be fully known and accepted by God. And as he was the Trinity for us, he won for us at the cross the ability to take advantage of the brain for use in our regeneration. I say it that way because he, in essence, equates regeneration with the process of becoming or self-actualizing, or his common verbiage is telling our stories. But I haven't found any conclusive teaching on the claim of Jesus becoming the Trinity for us in my research thus far, so I can't prove it. But either way, it's a very unbiblical claim nonetheless. But that is basically the end of his message to the woman at the 2019 If Lead conference. What did you think of his teachings? Did he handle scripture correctly? Do you think that his presentation here helped these women and equip these women to lead others to Christ and instruct them to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Titus 2, 3 to 5. As we look at more of Thompson's teachings in the coming episode, I want us to keep in mind the unspoken thread in his teachings and in the If Ministries presentation of a psychotherapist as one who can help equip women for the ministry. That which is unspoken is this. That scripture is not sufficient. It is not enough. They are claiming through the integration of psychology with scripture that psychology is a useful analytical tool, a God-given lens that can help us in ministering to others, and is useful in teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training the women of God for good works. This is to deny God's clear teaching in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, reject Christ's prayer that we be sanctified in the word, John seventeen seventeen, and rely on our works to sanctify instead of the spirit. So ladies, if you have placed yourself under teachings like this, I pray you begin to see the problem with messages and conferences that promote such teachings. I pray that as we go through this, diving more into what Thompson teaches, it may show you one way how man's wisdom has infiltrated the church. Perhaps encourage you to test all that you hear to God's word. There is no other tool so necessary to grow God's women into sanctification and good works than scripture. May we cling to it for life and may God get all the glory. I pray you are in his word. Ladies, if you are interested in the transcript for this episode, you can go to ttew.org. You can find other great resources, articles, blogs, and videos that may bless you in your Christian walk, as well as links to follow me on social media. If you wish to contact me, you can email me at thoroughlyequipped316 at gmail.com. Again, the website address is ttew.org. Thoroughly Equipped is part of Striving for Eternity's Christian podcast community. 
Striving for Eternity is a Christ-centered ministry focused on equipping people for eternity by assisting Christians to have an eternal perspective on life. They strive to bring evangelism, discipleship, apologetics, and Christian living together for the purpose of eternal preparation by exalting God, edifying and equipping the saints, and evangelizing the lost. They provide speakers, online articles, online courses, books, podcasts, and other theological resources, all centered on God's Word. To find out more, go to strivingforeternity.org. And to listen to other podcasts, go to podcast.strivingforeternity.org. I pray that their resources bless you as they have blessed me as we live our lives day by day, praising and glorifying God.